You know, the saying goes, you can't keep a good man down. But I don't know in my case, if it isn't, you can't keep a bad man up. But nonetheless, sometimes the physical body can do some tricks, can't it? If you'll turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 11. I'd like to read for our scripture reading as we consider the gift of the Holy Spirit, when, why, and how. I'd like to read by way of introduction to the doctrine, chapter 11 of Luke, and also if you'll turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. I'd like to read a few verses from Luke 11 and also from John chapter 7. In Luke 11, I'd like to begin reading with verse 11. And if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Then in John chapter 7, reading with verse 37, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If a man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. But this spoke he of the Holy of the Spirit, whom they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. As we come to this doctrine of the gift of the Holy Spirit, I believe that each one of us who has prepared their subject material recognize that dealing with anything to do with the Scripture, 1 Corinthians 8.2 certainly applies where it says, If any man thinks that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he should know. But especially as we come to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we find that the leading theologians that we would have respect for in fundamental realms also must admit 1 Corinthians 8.2 in a very real way concerning the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. For instance, Dr. Walverd, the president of Dallas Theological Seminary has this to say in his preface to the book that he has written on the Holy Spirit. He says concerning this in his preface, special attention has been given to such important and misunderstood subjects as the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, the baptism of the Spirit, spiritual gifts, the filling of the Spirit, and the eschatology of the Spirit. The author knows of no work which attempts to deal adequately with all these aspects of the doctrine. 
And isn't that amazing? For this man would have to be well aware of what is written in those areas and his position. And yet he says, as the author of this book, he says, he is not aware or he knows of no work which attempts to deal adequately with these subjects concerning the Holy Spirit in a, in a complete volume. And uh, Mr. Baker in his book, Charles Baker, in his book, Understanding the Gospels, and by the way, I don't know if uh, we're aware of that, but if you are not aware of that, that is a book I think is well worth having. Uh, on page 246, he says this, It is difficult to distinguish between the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit, his presence with God's people, and his indwelling in the believer, and yet these three conditions are separate and distinct. So when we read men such uh, words from men like this and others, these are not just isolated cases, we find that there is a general lack of understanding concerning the doctrine of the Holy Spirit as well as specific difficulties which are caused by our finiteness. And so when we come to this subject, we find that there is the general lack of understanding, but there is also the specific difficulties that we have because of our inability to be able to grasp fully what God has said on this tremendous subject. Now, as we approach the gift of the Holy Spirit, when and why and how, we're going to cover it under three points. One is the historical setting. Secondly is the specific teaching of Scripture. And thirdly is the dispensational implication. And so those are the three points we're going to cover this morning as we consider the uh, doctrine or the topic, rather, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now I'd like to do a little bit of Scripture reading under the historical setting for us to see this setting in its history. If you'll turn with me now, and there'll be several passages and excerpts of passages that we are going to read in order to uh, set the stage, as it were. Acts chapter 1, and I'll trust you're, you'll bear with me, for it's not often that I read uh, a number of passages, but we're going to be taking certain passages and excerpts of passages in order to prepare our minds for what we're going to say on the subject. So we are going to set the historical setting for the gift of the Holy Spirit as the Scripture gives it to us. Chapter 1, it says in verse 1 of Acts, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs being seen by them forty days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In verse 8, 
But ye shall receive power after the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Chapter 2 of Acts. Verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then I would like to look at verse 12. And they were all amazed and were perplexed, saying one to another, what meaneth this? What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. Verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunk as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, uh, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And then I'd like us to go down to verse 33 and verse 38. Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Then, verse 38, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you'll turn with me also to Acts chapter 10, we'll read a couple of verses from chapter 10 and 11, which is pertinent to the historical setting of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 44, <clears throat> while Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all them who heard the word, and they of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit as well as we? Then chapter 11 and verse 2. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him. Then I'd like to go down to verses 15 through 18. And, as, and now here is Peter speaking with those at Jerusalem who were contending with him about what happened at Cornelius' house, as we saw in chapter 10. He says in verses 15 through 18, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, referring to those who are at Cornelius' house, as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. For as much then as God gave unto the, them the same gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? 
When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now there is just one more section, if you'll bear with me, please, and that's in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. And just a couple of verses from John 14 and John chapter 16. And that will end our historical setting for what we want to discuss. John, John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, if ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come unto you. Then in John chapter 16, in verse, beginning with verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. When he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the Prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Nevertheless, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore, said I, that he shall take of mine, and show it unto you. Now we find that in these scripture passages, we find that the word of God sets for us the historical aspect, what actually happened concerning the gift of the Holy Spirit. We find the term, the gift of the Holy Spirit, has been mentioned several times in our reading of these scriptures. We find that God shows to us, and definitely when we talk about the gift of the Spirit, we must, of course, go historically back to the day of Pentecost, and we find that each one of these verses keep dealing with that very self-same time. So as we consider the historical account of it and what the Scripture has said, I now would like us to take the specific Scriptures and what they have said specifically in relationship to, that Holy, or to the gift of, that, of the Spirit. Let's now go back to uh, the day of Pentecost in our minds anyway. Acts chapters 1 and 2 I'd like us to turn. There are certain aspects concerning the gift of the Holy Spirit which are interchangeable, although not identical. And there are other aspects of the a gift of the Holy Spirit that are identical. And we're going to try to show the distinction and perhaps that will be some help in recognizing 
the historical account that we have read concerning the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are two observations that I believe are clear in the Scripture. As I said in the outset, I do not believe that I know everything there is to know about this, and there are things that are unclear in my mind, and there are some things I'm going to try to breeze over and hope you don't realize I'm breezing over it and ask me that question at the end. But nonetheless, uh, there are certain observations that I believe are clear enough concerning this uh, gift of the Holy Spirit. One observation, as we read the scripture, and I trust you kept your finger in John uh, as well, because we're going to go back there, in John 14 and 16, as well as keep your fingers please in Acts, uh, the beginning chapters particularly. But John 14 and John chapter 16, in our historical setting, we read certain verses that at least as I read them, I observe certain, uh, a certain truth here that seems very plain. First of all, the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, as I observe it here, is the Spirit himself, not just some manifestation of the Spirit, but rather it is the Spirit himself, not just a spiritual gift. Because when we look at what Christ said, what would happen... When the uh, time that we see at Pentecost was to come, when the gift of the Spirit was to be given, we find that he speaks of the Holy Spirit himself as a person being that gift. Look, if you will, with me again, please, in John chapter 14. He says, And I will pray the Father, in verse 16, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Now, again, I do not profess to be any Greek scholar, but the scholars who profess or who are uh, accepted to be somewhat in uh, that field, uh, I suppose most of us would accept Vine as an authority on that, tell us that the word here, another, has the idea of another of the same kind, the word that is used there. He says, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter of the same kind as what Christ was. Now, even if, we, if that be not true in the Greek, that doesn't change the context in which uh, we find that he deals with the Holy Spirit as the comforter, as a person. For Christ was a person. He was not just a mere manifestation. He was not just a mere gift. He was a person. And he says, I'm going to pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, which will be of the same kind as Christ was. And he says, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. So he speaks of him as a person. Uh, also we can see in John chapter 16, the personality. In fact, many uh, fundamental scholars and conservative scholars go to these very verses we're going to look at here to prove the personality of the Holy Spirit. That he's not just a mere influence, but that he's not just a mere power, but that he's a person. He says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you that the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. 
And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We find that here he's going to be reproving the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. We find that uh, it's, he's spoken of as a person later on. He says in verse 12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Nevertheless, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but, he shall, but what, he hear, what, he, what he shall hear, that shall he speak. We find that certainly personality is given. Intellect, will is given here concerning this uh, spirit that he spoke about as the spirit of truth. And truly that has to be the Holy Spirit of God and that he's the person of the Godhead of the Trinity. And he says, I will go away and I will send him unto you. He says in verse 17 he now, of uh, chapter 14, he now dwelleth with you and he shall be in you. Who shall be in you? But this comforter that he's sending, this comforter who acts and wills, this comforter who is uh, uh, a person of the divine trinity, the one who is like unto the first comforter, I will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. The one that the Lord Jesus says, it was expedient for you that I go away. Otherwise, the comforter uh, cannot come. So it was the whole, uh, God departing, and then the comforter that would come, the one who was of the kind that Christ was himself, and he was to be not now just with the people, uh, with the believer, but he was also going to be in the believer. Also, it is interesting, and this is another uh, thought that adds to that, but the context certainly makes it to be uh, makes the uh, the spirit of truth to be a person. It also makes it plain that this person was to not only dwell among the believers but in the believers. We find also the Greek here. I am told that in the Greek language, the word pneuma in the technical gender is neuter. But we find that the Holy Spirit, as he uh, inspired the writers of Scripture, and uh, Dr. Woodbridge, not Woodbridge, Dr. Walvoord brings out in his book on the Holy Spirit, that's not the only place I have read it, but he brings it out there, it is interesting that the Holy Spirit uses masculine pronouns to go along with the neuter spirit. In other words, if we were to be using the technical Greek, we would have to use the neuter pronoun, the neuter articles, to go along with the neuter verb, or the neuter noun, rather. And that makes sense to me, having uh, learned another language other than English, because in English it isn't quite the same. For instance, in the Dutch language, if I were to talk about the street, uh, straat is the word for street, but in Dutch, the word straat is feminine. Technically, in the Dutch language, I can say, I see the street, I see her. And that's proper and true and right, and that's technical. But also in Dutch, I can say, I see the street, I see it. The first time I'm talking about the technical gender, the second time I'm talking about the natural gender. In other words, when in a Spanish I learned the door was la porta, which was feminine, the Spaniard doesn't look at the door as though it has long hair and curls, that it's, that it's something feminine any more than the Hollander thinks that when he looks at the street that is something feminine. It is just the technical gender. 
but when they're dealing with it as to its uh, nature, then they deal with it in the neuter gender. And apparently so in the Greek language, it is the same. We find that the word pneuma is technically uh, 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 neuter, but nonetheless, the Holy Spirit of God also in those passages we have read, used interchangeably, sometimes it's using uh, neuter, and sometimes it is using masculine uh, pronouns in the place of the word spirit, which adds more to the fact of our position that the Holy Spirit, as fundamentalists, we believe is a person. For when he deals with the personal gender of the Spirit, what he is as, as his essence, he speaks of it not in the neuter, but in the masculine. So here we see the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, is addressed as being that comforter whom Christ was going to send, whom the Father had promised, whom Christ spoke about, and was going to send as the comforter to take the place of Christ who was to depart. And therefore, it was expedient for the believer as well as for the world that the Lord Jesus go away because when the comforter comes, he was to convict the world of sin and righteousness of judgment. He was also to have a special ministry to the believer as well in John chapter 16. Another observation I would like to make in that which we have seen in our historical setting from the scripture is that there is more than one aspect to the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is the indwelling aspect that is certainly there in the gift of the Holy Spirit as we compare to uh, two portions of scripture, one in Acts and one in John. Let's turn first to Acts chapter 2. And I'd like to read verse 33, where Peter says in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, after speaking about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, he then speaks about his ascension and he says in verse 33, Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. What these people saw, what they heard, what they perceived on the day of Pentecost, we find Peter now says, that the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, is that which is now shed forth, which they now see and hear. The Lord Jesus going to the Father has shed forth what you now see and what you now hear. Now when we go back to John chapter 16 and verse 7, we have the correlation to that. He says, Christ says, nevertheless, in verse 7 of chapter 16, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And so here on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and tells these people in his sermon, being filled with the Spirit of God, he says, what you now see and hear is because 
uh, that the Lord Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father exalted, having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit. He has shed forth what you now see and hear. So we find that the Holy Spirit coming, who was at that time when Christ spoke of it during the gospel records with the believer, was to be in the believer. We find on the day of Pentecost that's exactly what happened, and Peter says so, and refers back to what Christ said, I go away and I will send the Comforter. He will be not only with you, he shall be in you. And I will not deal more with the indwelling of the Spirit, for that is not my specific topic, but under the gift of the Holy Spirit, that has to be a part of it. A second aspect of the Spirit is the baptism with the Spirit. <clears throat> we find that this is also used in relationship to the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and verse 5, we read the words that the Lord Jesus spoke to his disciples. He said, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, we find that the Lord Jesus told his disciples that they were going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And we know, of course, on the day of Pentecost, that baptism took place. But if we would turn now to John, uh, to Acts chapter 10, on the day of Pentecost, that baptism that Christ said would happen took place. He said, not many days from now and not many days from then, the Holy Spirit came, and we find they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, at Cornelius' household, sometime later, after the day of Pentecost, we find Gentiles now receiving the baptism with the Holy Spirit. We find uh, this in chapter 10, and it says this, and when they, verse 45, and they of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. We find that verse 47 goes on further to say, uh, can any man forbid water that these should be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit as well as we have received the Holy Spirit? When Jerusalem council calls Peter to question about what happened at Cornelius' household, in verse 15, Peter says this, And as I began to speak, this is chapter 11, verse 15, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us, the Jewish believers, in the beginning. And I take that in the beginning to be the day of Pentecost. But he goes on further and he says, Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, for as much then as God gave them the same gift. 
So we find that what happened to those Gentiles at Cornelius' house, what happened to those Jews on the day of Pentecost, are accounted here to be the same gift. He says so. Not only that, he defines it as under two terms. In verse 47... I'm sorry, verse 45, he says, On the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter uh, 11 and verse 15, he says, When that happens, and when he fell on them, he says, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, Ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's referring back to what we saw in verse chapter 1 and verse 5 of Acts when, the, when God said that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he makes that to be identical with what happened on the day of Pentecost, what happened to, those, uh, to the Gentile believers at Cornelius' household. So we find we cannot separate the baptism of the Holy Spirit from the gift of the Holy Spirit any more than we can separate the indwelling of the Holy Spirit from the gift of the Holy Spirit without doing some uh, despite to the context of which these passages find themselves. Now, there are other terms also that have relationships uh, to the gift of the Holy Spirit, such as the filling of the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit, the promise of the Father. But all of these are only... Uh, which I say side pass to the major. So I'm going to just bring these two issues. I believe that the two major aspects concerning the gift of the Holy Spirit, I suggest to you, is the filling of, I'm sorry, is the indwelling of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit. So when we're talking or when the Scripture speaks about the gift of the Spirit, it's speaking about the person of God, the Holy Spirit, and his relationship to the indwelling of the believer and to that special baptism, baptizing work that Christ spoke about. Now lastly, I want to consider the dispensational implications of what we've just said. For that, I believe it's good for us to turn... Uh, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And verse 5. <clears throat> And hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given unto us. Now here we see Paul definitely speaking to members of the body of Christ. We find that he writes to them and he says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. If something's given, it's a gift. He speaks here about the gift of the Spirit and that the gift of the Holy Spirit having a relationship to the body of Christ. Now, we've already said the gift of the Holy Spirit has a relationship to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and to the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Christ spoke about in chapter 1, verse 5. Not only that Christ spoke about, we find that John the Baptist spoke about. 
we found, find that Joel spoke about. Because on the day of Pentecost, what did Peter say? This is that which Joel spoke about. So we find that that is not any secret baptism. That's not any uh, mysterious baptism of any sort. That is a baptism that God has been speaking about through Joel, through John the Baptist, through Christ. It is not something that was secretive. Now when we come to the fact that here in verse 5, uh, Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit being a gift to the believers of this age, we run into maybe a little bit of a problem. We say, well, then does that mean that we are indwelled by the Spirit and baptized by the Spirit with a baptism that uh, uh, was on the, in, in chapter 1 or that John spoke about, Joel spoke about? And I would say to you, no. And yes, at the same time, I would say yes, he's speaking about the same gift of the Spirit, but there's a different administration. In other words, something happened between the day of Pentecost and this day, so that the administration of that gift has changed, but the gift hasn't changed. Let me suggest this to you. Remember, we have said that there were two aspects to the gift of the Holy Spirit, two major aspects to the gift of the Holy Spirit. One was his indwelling ministry, and the other was his baptizing ministry. Let me first show the change in administration as far as the gift of the Holy Spirit. As far as the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit that Christ spoke about, that John the Baptist spoke about, that Joel spoke about, the change of administration changes that baptism. That baptism is not being carried out today in the church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not being baptized with supernatural powers. We are not being given those special abilities that the Holy Spirit of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit, gave unto those believers on the day of Pentecost, gave to those Gentile believers in Acts chapter 10. Not because the gift of the Holy Spirit is now a different kind of a gift of the Spirit, but because the administration changed. Because today that baptism has been superseded by a different baptism, which is the baptizing work of God the Holy Spirit, whereby he baptized us into the body of Christ. And that is a special one. That is a, a baptism that was not prophesied. That's a baptism that deals specifically with the church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That aspect of the gift of the Holy Spirit is no longer uh, in operation or being administered today in this administration. But there's another aspect of the Holy Spirit, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that is still in operation, that hasn't changed. I do not see where the relationship to the world has changed. When he's come, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. I do not find in the scriptures where that is no longer the operation of God among the world this day. I do not find that the Holy Spirit is not indwelling the believer today. We find that that spirit that came on the day of Pentecost, that gift that was given on the day of Pentecost, while the administration has changed so that that baptism work aspect of that has changed, the indwelling part has not changed. He still indwells the believer today. And we find that here when he says, 
uh, in uh, uh, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given unto us. It's the indwelling aspect of that Holy Spirit that he speaks about. The believer is indwelled today by the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, God didn't withdraw the gift of the Holy Spirit and then send down another gift of the Holy Spirit uh, after the church, the body of Christ, had begun. But rather, the Holy Spirit that was given and the gift of the Spirit that was given on the day of Pentecost continues on to this very same day in that of the indwelling of the Spirit. The baptism aspect having changed because the administration has changed. So we find that the dispensational implication is that the gift of the Holy Spirit that was given on the day of Pentecost and the gift of the Holy Spirit that is spoken of here as the Holy Spirit given unto us in Romans 5.5 5, is that very same gift in the indwelling of the Spirit. And that is still being carried on this day among believers. That aspect of his uh, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment has not changed as far as that gift. He still convicts the world of sin, righteousness, of judgment. But the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit, that of filling the believer uh, supernaturally and giving him supernatural gifts, that has changed because the administration has changed. But the gift of the Holy Spirit, spoken of by Christ, the coming of the person of the Holy Spirit, giving the uh, having the two aspects, uh, indwelling them and also uh, baptizing them uh, with supernatural powers for the glory of God, we find that has changed as far as the baptizing work, but the indwelling work continues on by the grace of God and forever continues on by the grace of God. So to bring our thoughts to a culmination, the gift of the Holy Spirit, when, how, why. I don't know that we've given all, the, uh, all that would satisfy everybody, maybe satisfy none, I don't know. But when, how, why, I do not know whether we fully can say when, how, why to every detail. But I trust some of our simple observations has maybe given a little help, a little insight, uh, or some thoughts concerning that subject. Now it's time to prove that if any man thinketh he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, <laughs> yet as he should know. And I would do, I'd, you'd do me a favor, you do this, instead of asking me a question, just tell me what you believe, because I already told you my answers. <laughs>
You made the gift the Holy Spirit. Yes, I make I the gift. the Holy Spirit gave gifts, such as tongues. That was his manifestation. I don't know that I would narrow it down simply to that thought. I don't mean to imply it. I'm, I'm, there are also spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit, who is the gift, gives. What I'm saying is I don't think the Holy Spirit himself was a gift. I think he gave gifts. <clears throat> but I'm saying if it isn't the, the, if the Holy Spirit is not the gift, why is it that the coming of the Spirit on the day mm -hmm. of Pentecost is called the gift of God? And, I mean, that is not even, you know, suggested. That's exactly what the scripture says. The gift of God is referred to the coming. It refers later on to uh, them seeing the promise of the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Spirit. No man seen the Holy Spirit. They, they saw the promise fulfilled, but they didn't see the Holy Spirit. I, I think in line with what Brother Harlan is suggesting, and if it's something that uh, somehow doesn't come over to me right quickly either on this subject, the gift of the Holy Spirit could be the gift being the Holy Spirit. That's what you suggested. But also the same word in English can be interpreted, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift which the Spirit gives. Now, the English can, can take both meanings mm -hmm. legitimately. Uh, your first reference back in Luke 11, mm -hmm. So you ask, uh, well, you know what you meant. Um, okay. uh, I'll comply uh, with your request on verse 13. He says, if you then mean evil, that's Luke 11, 13, uh, know mm -hmm. how to give gifts to your children. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Uh, I understand that the, the words Holy Spirit here, in spite of the fact that they're capitalized, they refer to simply spiritual gifts. That is to say... Uh, physical fathers give physical gifts, and the Heavenly Father gives the spiritual gifts, but not the Holy Spirit personally. And I think that our Pentecostal friends have taken that verse and really gone uh, into uh, the idea that we've got to earnestly ask and beg and beseech and get prayed through and all that other sort of gymnastics whereby what are we doing? We're asking for the Holy Spirit. Whereas I think it's, it's a spiritual gift at, at that passage. I don't know what Arlen thinks of that or if that's in line with what he was saying or not. But that's one of those things that uh, seems to me. But the problem I think I find there is when we correlate these verses in what John says, what Acts records is what happens, John specifically has, I think we're all in agreement, that it was the person... Thank you so much, Arlen. It's a <clears throat> joy and privilege to be here tonight. And we have enjoyed the fellowship of Harlan and Jenny Shriver in past years. We were formerly down in Genoa City while they were in Madison, and so we were about 75 miles apart. And from time to time we would make a dinner appointment or a lunch appointment and meet halfway. And one time it was quite unique because we ate together in different restaurants. <laughs> We had uh, been eating in one restaurant. We'd met there, I guess, at least once or twice. And Harlan said, well, why don't we get together at the country kitchen? And, well, I didn't uh, dawn on me too much about the country kitchen because where we had been meeting, there was a great big cow. Uh, I don't know how tall it was outside. And I thought, well, you know, that's surely got to be the country kitchen. For all that, it fits. So we met. They went to the country kitchen across the street 
and we went into this restaurant where the big cow was. And we waited, and they waited, and we waited. Well, we both, you know, both of us decided we better go ahead and eat. They're not going to show up. So I guess about, oh, partway through our meal, maybe halfway through, uh, Harlan and Jenny came in. They had figured out what had happened, that I really didn't get uh, the <laughs> instructions right. But we have enjoyed fellowship together. The Lord has been extremely good to us. And we praise him again for his wonderful love and mercy and grace. It is indeed a joy to be able to come and share with you some thoughts from God's precious and wonderful word. We cannot begin our message without sharing just a little bit from our granddaughter. We were in Minneapolis a week ago last Friday. And I had strained my back in the morning, and so when I got to Minneapolis, my back was quite sore. And we went to bed that evening. Our little granddaughter was in bed with us, and we just had gotten in bed, and she got out of the bed and got down on her knees, and she prayed. She got in bed, and she prayed again. She turned to me, and she said, Grandpa, how is your back? Well, I said, it's still sore, little Bonnie. Well, she said, I just prayed twice for it. <laughs> and so she closed her eyes, and... She said, Grandpa, I just prayed again. How is it now? <laughs> she believed in immediate answer to prayer. I didn't have quite that much faith. And uh, I'm still suffering a little bit uh, from a back problem. But how we thank God for the families that he has given to us and for our loved ones and the joy that we share together in Jesus Christ, God's Son and our Savior. Before we look into our study, shall we look to our Heavenly Father in prayer? Our gracious God and our Father, we thank Thee again tonight for the privilege of opening up the wonderful Word of God. And we pray that as we open up this book, that the author of it, the Holy Spirit of God, that He might enlighten our minds and our hearts to the precious truths that You have for us today, and that we might go out of the auditorium tonight having been drawn just a little bit closer to Thee, and perhaps loving Thee and loving Your Son just a little bit more. We pray this now for Thy glory and praise through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles now and turn with us to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. We're going to read just one verse of Scripture from there, and then we're going back into the writings of the Apostle Paul. We're going to concern ourselves tonight with the three different thoughts that come for us in the present administration of the grace of God. In Hebrews chapter 11, which is often described as the great faith chapter, we find in verse 7 these words. Hebrews 11 verse 7, by faith Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Now I want you to note here with us the phrase, he condemned the world. He condemned the world. The three words that we want to look at tonight, scripturally, are the words alienation, reconciliation, and separation. 
alienation, reconciliation, and separation. And I'm sure that we're going to find some thoughts to ponder, not only tonight, but in our study day by day. When we study alienation, we find scripturally that there are two areas that the Bible speaks to us about alienation. And I look at them in two, two categories. First of all, that which is dispensational. A dispensational alienation. The second one that we will consider is personal or individual alienation. Now, if you will, to the book of Ephesians and the second chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 11. Paul writes thus to the believers at Ephesus, and perhaps as a circular letter to all who would be reading it. Wherefore, remember that ye in time past... Gentiles in the flesh. Now I'm sure that you have found as you study your Bible that God has a twofold program in scriptures. One that has to do with the nations, the other that has to do with the nation. Sometimes, with the call of Abram, God chose to bless the nations through the nation. Whereas in the present administration of grace that we are living in tonight, God has chosen to bless the nations through the fall or through the, through the setting aside of the nation, that is, the nation of Israel. And so Paul declares here that we were Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. I don't know if you have ever thought of how privileged, privileged we are to be living in the period of time that we are tonight. For had you been living prior to the revelation given to the Apostle Paul, you as a Gentile would have been in a very sad condition. We have much to thank God for tonight that we are privileged to be living in the administration of the grace of God. And I'll show you why. Verse 12. Concerning the Gentiles. That at that time. Verse 11. We have time past. Verse 12. That at that time. You Gentiles were without Christ. Some translated. You were Christless. Secondly the Gentiles were aliens. From the commonwealth of Israel. They were countryless. They were strangers from the covenants of promise. They were friendless, having no hope. They were hopeless, and without God, they were godless in the world. At that time, the Gentiles did not enjoy a very favored position. They were Christless. Countryless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. Now, had you and I been living at that time, this would have been descriptive of, descriptive of us. 
But as one man said in a testimony some time back, and I'm sure you've heard it before, I love the but nows in Scripture. For notice what we read in verse 13. But now, in contrast to the in time past, in contrast to at that time, but now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now the word that we want to consider with you is in verse 12 in the first part. Being aliens, and it can be properly translated alienated. Being aliens or being alienated, it has within it the idea of being out of favor. If someone is alienated, they are no longer in favor with the individual or with the persons from whom they have been alienated. And the Gentiles were no longer in the favor of God. If I understand my scriptures correctly, this goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. When the Gentiles who knew God no longer wanted to retain God in their minds, and thus God gave them up, and God gave them over. And God called out Abram, and God began to set forth a nation through Abram. And the history from that point on in the Old Testament scriptures is primarily the call and the beginning, the birth, and the growth of the nation of Israel and its history. Now, we look at this dispensationally. Dispensationally, the Gentiles were alienated from God because God was dealing primarily and essentially with one nation, that is, the nation of Israel. And it is not until God gives to the Apostle Paul that wonderful message of grace concerning the administration of the grace of God that this alienation is brought to an end. No Gentile tonight is alienated from God dispensationally. No Gentile this evening is alienated from God because they cannot be saved. God has changed that. Remember what God did in Noah's day? He condemned the world. He condemned the world. And God destroyed that world. Only eight people out of that whole world in that day were spared their lives. Now, brethren, I do not claim to understand God and his manners or his ways. I believe them as set forth in scriptures. You perhaps, as well as I, have wondered many, many times how a righteous and a holy and a just God can allow this world to go on in the condition it is in tonight. And my dear friend, this world that we are living in is not going to get any better. It is not going to improve. We are fighting today for our very existence as far as being able to faithfully proclaim the truth and the teaching of God's word. And the freedoms that you and I have enjoyed so long in our lives in this great nation of ours are becoming more in jeopardy every day. But perhaps our Lord will come before it gets too much worse 
And we will go on into his presence to enjoy his blessings in the heavenlies throughout all of the ages to come. Now, we're going to come back to this word alienation because there is a way tonight and a sense tonight in which men are still alienated from God. And I want to look at that, but not right now. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here we find, I believe, the heart of the gospel of the grace of God. I believe the truth that Paul sets forth here in 2 Corinthians 5 is one of the greatest messages and perhaps the greatest message that man has ever known. Notice what we find beginning with verse 18. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world. Doing what to the world? Everybody. What did he do to the world? What did he do to Noah's world? Condemned it. Is there a difference between a world condemned and a world reconciled? There surely is. There surely is. Now here we find God reconciled the world through Christ. But listen now. Reconciliation is not salvation. Reconciliation is not salvation. Not as God sets it forth in this portion of Scripture. The idea here is that God has reconciled the world to himself. And as we note, man is called upon then to be reconciled unto God. This too has a dispensational setting to it. May I suggest to you that this gospel or this message of reconciliation, some object to the term gospel, that this message of reconciliation was not preached prior to Paul? Might I suggest to you that this message of reconciliation will not be preached after the church is caught up? It has a dispensational setting in the word of God. And you and I tonight are privileged to live in a time in which God is reconciling the world rather than having condemned the world. Now we may not have been much better than some in Noah's day. Because the word, word of God is very clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. But you know something tonight, brethren? People do not want to own up to their responsibility to God. We were dealing with a man not very long ago, and he was telling me about his past life. And he said, why will God hold me responsible for my past life? If he knows the kind of parents I had, if he knows the kind of environment I was in, why will God hold me responsible for my life? Might I just say that's a cop-out? Because God holds every one of us responsible for whatever decisions we make in this life. You cannot blame your life tonight on your parents. You cannot blame your life tonight on your society. 
or on your school system. You and I as individuals are responsible to God for whatever decisions we make in our lives. And I, have to, I'd had to, I had to bring this man to the place where I said to him, Look, you are a sinner. You need Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, and that alone is going to change your life. I'm not concerned about your past life. I'm not concerned about your childhood days. Like one man said when he was counseling, What's your problem now? What's wrong now? You can't correct the past. You can't go back and undo that. But you can do something about today. You can do something about it right now. As we begin to, first of all, receive the gift of salvation and then allow the Spirit of God to do His work in our hearts and in our lives to bring us into that life that God has for us, a life separated unto God, a life that glorifies God day by day, and I'm sure that you'll agree with me tonight that God has saved us that we might live a holy life. God has saved us that we might walk in righteousness and in holiness. God has not saved us to compromise with the world and walk in the world and try and be a friend of God and a friend of the world at the same time. You cannot do it. We find here then that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we as ambassadors of Christ, as though God did beseech by us, we pray in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. This is our plea tonight to the unbeliever. This is our plea tonight to those who are without Christ. God is not at enmity with you tonight, my dear friend. If there is enmity tonight between God and yourself, it's on your part, not God's. God reconciled the world. Whatever enmity is there tonight is between you and God, not between God and you. You are the one who is at enmity with God, not God at enmity with you tonight. Now there was a time when the Gentiles were without God, even though they were not without excuse. But God was not beseeching them. When he commissioned the twelve apostles in Matthew the tenth chapter, he didn't go out and tell them to evangelize the world. He said, don't go to the Gentiles, enter ye not into the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But to the apostle, to the nations, the apostle Paul, God throws open wide the door of salvation. It includes all men. But that's only one part of that truth of reconciliation in scriptures. Let's look at another side of this glorious truth of reconciliation in Ephesians 2 and verse 16. Remember that in 2 Corinthians 5. We are speaking there of God's message to a lost and a dying world. Be ye reconciled to God. In Ephesians the second chapter, Paul is writing to those who have by faith received the gift of salvation. If you'll note in chapter 1, in verse 13 there, In whom ye also, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, or literally, upon believing, 
ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. They had heard the gospel of salvation. They believed and they were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And brethren, that brought about the full reconciliation that Paul writes about here in Ephesians 2.16. And here we read in verse 16 of the second chapter, that he might reconcile both unto God, both Jew and Gentile, all who had believed, Jew and Gentile have been reconciled to God into one body. Only the believer is fully reconciled unto God. Only the person tonight who has trusted Jesus Christ as his or her Savior and Lord is in the church which is the body of Christ. Only that person can speak of a full reconciliation that Paul mentions here in Ephesians, the second chapter, and also in the uh, Colossian letter as well. So we find then that this also has two sides to it. An appeal to the lost and an assurance or a blessing to the saved. Now we continue on here because our time continues to move. Let's go back for a few moments and consider this uh, word alienation. If you will, in the same book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18. Beginning with verse 17, we read there. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. And I believe tonight that if there's a time when Gentiles have vanity in their mind, it's in the days in which we're living. When we hear so much about intellectualism, I dealt with a young man a few years ago about personal salvation. But at that time he said to me, men will solve their own problems. Pastor Wynne Johnson knew this young man. He talked with him. Uh, while he was down in De Denver here in the hospital. This young man said, God, the man rather is going to solve his own problems with all of his knowledge, with his intellect, with all of the advancements in science. Man will solve his own problems. That was the hope of that young man. One day his mother came home and he wasn't around the house. She went out in the field and there she found her son with a shotgun laying by his side. He had gone outside and put it to his head and pulled the trigger. What happened? This world that he was so sure that was going to solve its own problems. This world that seemed to him to offer hope at one time. He realized there wasn't any hope in this world. He realized that instead of man solving his problems... The problems that we're facing become more increasingly difficult. Problems seem to come more often. There's hardly a week goes by that we don't hear of new problems. He went out and took his own life. You see, he was trusting in the vanity of the mind of men. They don't need God today. Have you heard that before? We're going to make it on our own. But my, how man has to deceive himself. Because if he looks around today in this world and tells himself it's getting better, he has to believe a lie, even his own lie. 
But let's go on here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated, listen now, being alienated from the life of God. Is there anyone tonight that needs to be alienated? Is there any person, any individual tonight, any man, any woman, any young person tonight that needs to be alienated from God? Is there no way back into God's presence? Is there no way back into God's favor for them? Are they forever alienated from God? The answer is no. They're not alienated from God because of God's side. They're alienated from God because of their side. They're alienated from God because they do not respond to God's plea of reconciliation. They do not respond to God's message of love to them. We go on to read here in verse 18. Their understanding is darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Notice, through the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their hearts. Why are they alienated? Because God is dealing with Israel? No, that's not the reason. Why are they alienated tonight? Because God wants nothing to do with them? No, that's not the reason. Why are they alienated from God tonight? Because of the blindness of their hearts. Because of their failure to receive the light and the truth that God is making known unto men today. There's nothing so sad in our ministry when we talk to men and women or young people who are alienated from God and refuse to receive God's plea to them to be saved. Up in Madison... We've had a group of young people in our neighborhood there over the past years that have created some degree of difficulty for us. These young people would come and they would sit by the church and they would smoke and they would drink and they would really make a mess around the churchyard. And we talked about at different times, how can we get rid of these young people? How can we keep them off of the church property? Well, we began to talk about it and we came to a conclusion. Let's not drive them away. Let's evangelize them. And so we changed our attitude towards them. God's attitude was right. You see, God loves them. God loves them. Christ died for them. God reconciled them. Let's change our attitude. I said, let's begin to pray about it. And let's begin to see if we can reach them. And so we did. Mel Derry, one of the men from our church who was here, does a lot of personal work and Mel had good contact with them and he began to talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. I have talked to them personally about the Lord Jesus Christ. We've sat on the ground with them and gone into the word of God. Others have done it. We've been waiting for them to respond to God's message of love but thus far we haven't seen that response. One thing we have found out though they're not around the church as much as they used to be. You see, they're not willing to listen to the gospel like they were at first. At first we had many opportunities. 
But now they they kind of shy away from us. In a sense, it grieves us at our heart because we want to reach them for Jesus Christ, God's Son. But they're alienated from God tonight. Alienated from God. I can't think of anything worse than that, can you? To be alienated from God. To be alienated from the life that God supplies, not because they have to be. Not because they have to be. The great preacher in England was speaking on the wedding feast and how they went out and they bid men to come to the wedding feast. They had all kinds of excuses. He said, there are many of you here that are like that. The invitation is given and he says, I cannot, I cannot. And this great old preacher said, I want to, it translate, translate that for you. He said, that's Latin. He said, that's Latin. I want to translate it for you. The words are not, I cannot, but I will not. I will not. You see, God has broken down the alienation that was there before he gave Paul this great truth of, of reconciliation. And we plead with men tonight. We beg with men tonight. Women and young people, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're alienated through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. And in verse 19, we go on to learn about the depths of sin. And we learn about that up in Madison. We're living in a city where not too much is held back as far as men and women and young people are concerned. But let's move along into our last point that we want to touch upon this evening. The last point we want to touch upon is separation. Separation. Alienation, God changed that. Reconciliation, we preach it tonight. Separation. But we're not talking about separation for a while. We're talking about eternal separation from God. In Madison, we have an organization that is trying to get off the ground and go nationwide. Freedom from religion. Freedom from religion. It was kind of interesting the other day while we were parked in the parking lot of the St. Mary's Hospital there in Madison. Our car was down about two cars, and we've got the gospel right on our bumper stickers there, and on the window of our the back window of our car, and just about two cars over was this sign, Freedom from Religion. I tell you, if had there been another parking space right next to it, I'd have backed out and parked right in there. Uh, <laughs> showing them that they don't have that freedom to, and they ought to thank God for it. Because I tell you, brethren, when they have freedom from religion, they're going to wish, if such would be the case, that someone would come and tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll turn with us now to Paul's letter to the believers at Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's a terrible, terrible thing to be alienated from God. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 beginning with verse 5. The believers at Thessalonica were going through a great deal of tribulation. 
so difficult it was for some of them that they believed that they were already in the tribulation period. Verse 5, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing. Think on that, will you, for just a little bit? Yes, we may go through some real testings in the days ahead. Our freedoms may be taken from us, but bear in mind, it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. As I had come out of the church some time ago, they, they had kind of made a mess out in our uh, approach to the church door there. and It was kind of bad. And, and I thought, well, Lord, you know all about it. And these young people who are doing this are not going to get away with it. I don't have to bring the vengeance to them. But unless they receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the day is going to come when they're going to give an account to what they've done at that church there on Painted Post Drive. Every deed they've ever committed in their lives, everything they've ever done, they're going to have to answer to God Almighty for Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But ah, that's not what we want. We're not saying, God, we want vengeance. We're saying, God, save them by thy grace. Make them a child of God. Let them enjoy the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, God's Son. Let them see what a joy the Christian life is. I thank God I'm saved tonight, don't you? I'm glad I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God tonight I'm on my way to heaven. I praise the Lord tonight. I'm not going to have to worry about what's down here on this earth. There's freedom coming. It's coming when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, breaks the silence of heaven. That which this world has known for over 1900 years is going to be broken. Victory is going to be ours. Victory is going to be Christ's. But notice again, verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flame, in fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, dear friend, who shall be punished? Ah, some say God's the God of love. My dear friend, he's a righteous and a holy and a just God. Over the years I've had folks say to me, what about the poor heathen? What about those who have never heard? I said, do you know what question Paul asked? Paul never asked what about the heathen. Paul never asked about those over yonder. Paul said, how can God save anyone at all? How can a righteous and a holy and a just God save the likes of us tonight? Apart from his mercy and his love. And his grace. And Paul goes on to tell us in the book of Romans how God can be just and justifier of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he can only do it because Jesus Christ, God's Son, bore our sins there on Calvary Street 1900 years ago. He was made sin for us, the Son of God who knew no sin, that you and I might be made the righteousness of God in him. Clothed tonight in God's very own righteousness and in God's very own holiness. 
took away our filthy rags, and he gave us a new garment of righteousness. We stand before him tonight, accepted in the beloved, complete in the Lord Jesus Christ, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and looking for the best yet to come. But notice, they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Forever lost. Forever separated from God. No way back into his presence. Forever lost. Do we believe that tonight? Are we aware of what it means to be lost forever? Never an opportunity again to come back to God. Eternally separated from God. Ah, yes, they cry out freedom from religion. Someday they'll have it. Someday they'll have it. But like is recorded in Luke the 16th chapter, they're going to would that someone could go back and tell a loved one about the Lord Jesus Christ. That someone might somehow tell those who have not yet died. But then it'll be too late because there'll be no more message for man. Alienation. Praise God, we're no longer alienated. You and I tonight who are sons of God, children of God by faith, we're no longer separated from the favor of God. We enjoy it. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Oh, how favored we are tonight. How blessed you and I are this evening. We ought to just thank God every day for all that we have and all that we are in Christ. Alienation, not for those of us who are saved. Reconciliation, ah yes, to the world, yet to the lost. But praise God for us tonight, we've already been placed into the body of Christ. We're members of his body, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Separation, no, not for us. Not for those who are saved. We're not looking for separation. But we're looking forward to meeting our blessed Lord and Savior in the clouds and in the air. We've not seen him before. We're going to see him in that day. We're going to see his presence in that day. We're going to be thankful throughout all eternity for what he's done for us. It has often been asked, what are you going to do when you get to heaven? What's the first thing you're going to do? One pastor said, I'm going to look up Moses. Another man said, well, I'm going to look up this man. But brethren, I think when we get to heaven, you and I are going to be dumb before the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be so filled with gratitude and thanksgiving that we'll not say a word. We're going to stand in awe of his mighty presence and in awe of his mighty love. In that day, we'll get some idea of what Christ left to come down to this earth. We don't know what heaven's like yet. But in that day, we're going to see what heaven is like and wonder why Christ was willing to leave all of that to come down here. But we know why tonight, don't we? It's for his glory and for his praise. We have been saved tonight for the glory of God, not for the glory of this man. Not at all. We're saved tonight for the glory of God, that the glory and the praise might be his throughout all of the ages to come. Oh, how we ought to just say, thank you, Lord, tonight. Thank you for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich 
and so free. Shall we close in prayer? O Heavenly Father, we thank Thee tonight for Your Word. We thank Thee for that great message revealed through the messenger to the nations, the Apostle Paul, that he came bearing good tidings to the Gentiles, that things were different now. Israel was no longer in a favored status, but blindness in part had happened to Israel in order that the message of salvation might go forth to the Gentiles and to the nations. Thank you now for this opportunity to share the word. Bless it to our hearts for thy glory and praise. Amen.